You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Hey, uh, we're in the last week of our series through the book of Titus, the fifth week. If you're new to Rev Church, what we like to do here is we like to go verse by verse through books of the Bible about 90, 95% of the time. Uh, causes us to do a couple of things. Number one, we don't abuse uh, certain subjects that we've spent all our time on in the flesh. And secondly, it causes us to deal with difficult passages of Scripture. Today, we have a few verses that are going to be very difficult, and you'll see that today. I'm probably going to say some things today that you absolutely have never heard in a church before, especially from a platform, maybe behind the scenes you've heard it. But in chapter 3, we're going to look at it in its entirety today, verses 1 through 15. Uh, Really what Paul does through the power of the Holy Spirit is he gives Titus, the pastor of all these churches on the island of Crete, some reminders, some things that they need to remember. And this absolutely applies to us 2,000 years later as it was the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. Um, Every single Wednesday in our neighborhood, it's garbage day. Y'all know what that means, right? The garbage truck comes around and takes up the garbage. Well, my son Titus, and this is why I love the book of Titus, because my son's named Titus. Uh, He's 11 years old now, and the great thing about your kids growing up is you can give them things to do that you used to have to do, like taking the garbage out. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? You know, it's like they go through these stages where it's like, oh, they can finally get in the car on their own. Oh, man, thank you, Jesus. And and now they can take the garbage out for us. Oh, thank you. He can mow the yard. Praise God. You know what I mean? And so so he's... One of his chores is to take the garbage out, but it never ceases to amaze me, even though he knows every single Wednesday is garbage day, he forgets almost every single Tuesday night to take the garbage out. And so we have to wake him up on Wednesday. He runs out there in a blanket with slides on, trying to make sure the garbage gets out before the garbage runs. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? Say amen. We have to be reminded of things like this constantly. Maybe you've forgotten at some time to pay a bill. And that's really important. You don't want to be without electricity or water or, or whatever, uh, internet. Oh, man, heaven forbid you don't have internet. You know what I mean? Like, I think you'd rather not have electricity and water than internet. You know what I'm saying? Like this upcoming generation. But, but if you forget to pay a bill, it's something that's very important, but it's easy to forget about it. Not to start the marriage counseling early this week, because next week's when we start our marriage series, but maybe guys in here, you've forgotten your wife's anniversary at some point. Maybe you forgot her birthday. Hey, hey, men in here, I'm going to help you out. The month of February has something very special on February 14th that you cannot forget about. Does anybody know what it is? Valentine's Day. See, it wasn't real strong because the guys were thinking, what is it? What? February 14th, like three people knew what it was, and I just helped you out and, caused you, and helped you like get away from a lot of pain. Don't forget that, okay, y'all? It's not the Super Bowl. It's Valentine's Day, okay, y'all? Do not forget It's easy to forget things. It's incredible how we can forget even the most important things in life. So what you're going to see in chapter 3 is you're going to see five reminders that the Scripture is going to give every single one of us this weekend. We're going to start in verse 1 and do what we always do. We're just going to go verse by verse. Y'all with me? Say, I am. Titus chapter 3 verse 1 says, Remind the people. Remind the people. That's all of us. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. 
So the first reminder that Paul gives is he's giving reminders to do this. Reminder, keep doing this. Reminder, if you're not doing this, start doing this. And he gives us a list. And the first one, y'all, is a doozy. He says, number one, be subject to rulers and authorities. What that means is we should all as Christians submit obediently, specifically to government authorities or any authority that's over in us in our lives. We should submit obediently. Now, again, we're getting into it right off the bat here. And the reason that Paul is giving these reminders is because for many of us, if not all of us, a lot of these are very difficult to do. Really, the first reminder when it says, be subject to rulers and authorities, it echoes what we see all throughout the New Testament. Y'all need to listen to me because this is a hot topic in the church and in Christianity today. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, Submit yourselves... For the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Jesus himself even alluded to this concept when he dealt with the issue of paying taxes in Matthew chapter 22 when he said, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. What does this mean? It means that as Christians, we are not to be anarchists. Uh, We do not subvert the government or disobey the government unless the government brings us into direct conflict with the commands of God. Let me back this up by saying no human authority has the right to tell us to sin against God. But this command is very full and complete when it says this, that we are to have submissive obedience to the laws and the directives of the land. Now, why would Paul write this? He had very, very good reason, and I think we can learn from this today. The Jewish culture uh, in biblical times when Paul wrote this uh, was really it provoked a hatred from the pagan culture and those that were in leadership in the government because the Jewish culture had a clear disdain that they showed towards government. And even during certain times, the Jewish culture would try to overthrow the government. Uh, If you remember, certain disciples were named like Simon the Zealot. When it says Zealot, the closest translate, like the closest thing for us today is like, a QAnon person that's in a militia. You know what I'm saying? Like they're, they're a conspiracy theorist that's in a militia that wants to overthrow the government. And so this is how Jewish people were thought of by the pagans. Well, Christianity at the time was considered a sect of Judaism because the majority of the people that had been saved came from Judaism. And so what God is saying right here, don't miss it, he's saying, I don't want my people to be known for their politics. I want them to be known for the way that they love each other. Jesus said something like that, didn't he? The way people are going to know that you are my followers is that you vote Republican. No, that's not quite right. You vote Democrat. No, you share your libertarian views on Facebook every election year. No, the way they're going to know you're my disciples is by the way that you love each other. What Paul is essentially saying when he says this is it's not worth it to God for people to not get saved because of politics. In other words, I've said it before, 
We don't just want to be known for our politics. We want to be known for the fact that we love Jesus and we fulfill his commands and our loves. Now, this is tough to do, y'all. It's tough to do because if I'm being honest with you, there's only been a handful of politicians that I've respected in my lifetime and a whole lot more politicians that I don't trust. And I really make it very difficult for me to honor them. I can remember when my grandparents used to share with me that the scariest night of the whole year was Halloween night. Well, now in our culture today, it's election night. Y'all know what I'm saying? Like, that's the scariest night. That's a joke, y'all. Come on. Like, we got to get y'all woke up, okay? We've seen this play out, haven't we, in the church and with Christians because everybody I know over the last three years has struggled mightily with this. I hope that this isn't too soon to bring this up, but I remember just the struggle in myself two or three years ago when mask mandates came out. And I remember thinking to myself, really wanting to be rebellious, really wanting to just stick it to the government. Nobody's going to tell me to wear a mask. And again, I hope we're far enough away where I'm not going to get 50 emails from people, you know what I mean, tomorrow saying, I can't believe, what are you, some kind of sissy Democrat or whatever, you know what I mean, because I couldn't mention this two years ago because half the church would have left the next week. And that's insane over masks. This is what Paul is saying. Just, just, just submit to the government. I, I would encourage you to remember who was in power at the time when Paul wrote these words. When during the New Testament, like in Peter, he's saying, hey, even, even submit to the emperor as the supreme authority. You know who the emperor was? A guy named Nero. This is the guy that fed Christians to lions. This is the emperor that would dip Christians in oil and stick them on stakes on roads and light them, use them as road lamps. This is the guy who burned an entire city down, blamed it on the Christians so that he would have free reign to wipe them out and understand, understand, Paul is here saying, whatever he says to do, as long as it doesn't go against the word of God, do it. President Biden doesn't seem so bad, does it? So let's get some perspective here and let's, let's be known for loving Jesus. Number two, I'll tell you what, if you want to email me, Email Jeff or RevMen at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Is it RevMen? RevMen at Crossville. Re- he'll handle it. <laughs> Number two, he says, serve eagerly. He says specifically in our translation, be ready to do whatever is good. Now, this is a very important command because in verse 14, it uses the exact same language. So we're going to come back to this. But again, We're pointing out what we pointed out last week is that all Christians need to be eager to do good works. And so there's no shortage of preachers that will stand on a platform and preach the word and get the glory. But boy, is there a shortage of Christians, even in biblical times, that live out their faith 24-7, 365. Next, he says, speak truthfully and gently. 
He says specifically, slander no one. One translation says, speak evil of no one. The Greek word that's used here is the word blaspheme, and it's got a couple different definitions. Listen to the first one. It means to curse or treat someone with contempt. The second definition is any manner of speech that disregards or disrespects the status of another, no matter who it is, lost, saved, we're on the politics thing, Democrat, Republican, whatever. Like we don't, we don't slander people. We don't blaspheme people. Next, he says, stand at peace when he says, be peaceable and considerate. Literally translated, this means be a non-fighter. In other words, we walk away from quarrels. We, we simply decide as Christians that we're not going to fight. Later, you're going to see that Paul refers to actual physical hand-to-hand combat when it comes to arguing about theology, which I think is awesome. But he says, He says, don't fight. Don't fight. Even if fighting with someone would gain you something, we're to be peaceable and stand at peace. Next, he says, show humility. One translation says, always be gentle toward everyone. The idea, not to reiterate this constantly through the book of Titus, is you think of others more than you think of yourself, like it says in Philippians. Another translation in the NASB says, show every consideration for all men. Now, this is the last thing that we're to remember to do for a reason. Greek culture prized consideration for others, even in the pagan culture. People that were humble and showed humility, it was thought to be a good trait. But in pagan culture, listen to this. This applies to us so readily in Crossville, Tennessee. In pagan culture, the reason people would be nice to people, the reason they would show humility, is it was a selfish into a means for them. In other words, they would use fake humility in order to work people. In other words, when people in Greek culture would see each other in the grocery store, they would see each other and say all kinds of fake things and act like they really love the person and say, hey, girl, how are you doing? It's so good to see you. While they're thinking in their head, I can't stand this person. Man, your kids look so great. Them are the ugliest kids I've ever seen in my life. Man, I hope everything's going so good. We got to get together sometime. They're thinking in their head, I ain't ever going to get together with this person. On Facebook, this is the equivalent of like saying somebody's your best friend or whatever, but you really can't stand them. Boy, this applies to us today, Crossville, Tennessee. In other words, you show consideration for people, not so that they will owe you one. You show consideration for people so that God gets the glory. You show humility so that you're a witness for Christ. In other words, you're not buying bagels for people like Dwight did on The Office so that people will owe you one in the future, if that makes sense. Does anybody get that reference? Raise your hand. Okay, like, okay, we got some Office fans in here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So you don't work people with fake humility. We continue in verse 3. Everybody still with me? Say, I am. At one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Second reminder, boy, this is so important for us to do. Remember who you were before you knew Jesus. Paul says, remember who you were. Remember before Christ how agonizingly miserable you were. Remember how you were tormented, how some of you guys were just so disgusting, how broken you were, how depressed you were, how hopeless you were, how hurt you were. Remember how lost you were. Remember how distressed you were. Remember how much despair you had before you put your trust in Christ. 
Remember what you once were before you got saved and met Jesus. Also remember when you're dealing with difficult people, what they could be going through before they know Jesus. He goes through this list to remind us of who we used to be before we knew Christ. And hopefully you're not this person still. First, he says foolish. And just quite honestly, foolish means at one time you were stupid. How many people in here have ever been stupid? Raise your hand. I know I'm building your faith up, okay? I know it's just a great, y'all can do anything. You're stupid, okay? So how many of y'all are sitting next to somebody that's been stupid before? Raise your hand. Maybe even today. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. We were all stupid. We were all insane in the sense that we were in a cycle of insanity when it came to our lives before we knew Christ. We were disobedient, he says. That means we were self-centered. We were deceived, which means we allowed the voice of the enemy to convince us of things that weren't true, maybe about ourselves, maybe about the world, whatever it is. So we were deceived. We allowed the voice of the enemy to convince us of untruths. We're enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. That could mean that someone is addicted, but a better translation means sin dictated everything in our lives before we knew Christ. Remember before you knew Christ how guys, all you ever thought about was getting laid. And in high school, that's all you wanted to do. It was like the movie American Pie played out. Remember how money drove all your decision-making and you just wanted more and more and the love of money was the thing that, that controlled you. You were enslaved by it. Remember when you were, had pride in your life and you thought you knew it all. Remember maybe when you had alcohol in your life and alcohol dictated everything in your life. Well, now you've been set free. He then says malice and envy. Remember back when we had malice and envy? And boy, malice and envy is a weird one because malice and envy means this. You detested people for what they had, but at the same time, you desperately wanted what they had. Hopefully you're not like that anymore. Remember at one time when you used to judge the person for the new car they got, the new house they got, they got married. You had nothing good to say, but secretly you were like, I wish I could have that car. Wish I could have that house. Wish I could find a man that loves me or a woman that loves me. Remember that? Before you knew Christ? Remember, when you had a life full of hate, he closes the remember who you were with a life full of hate. You hated other people. Other people hated you. Maybe before you were born again, you struggled with racism. Maybe before you were born again, you struggled with certain kinds of people for whatever reason it was. And hate just clouded your mind. It's good for us to remember these things. If you're offended in here, maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you're like, why are we going through this? Well, it's because it's good for us to remember that amazing grace saved a wretch like me. We're all wretches. We're all broken. And any time we forget that, we get prideful. That's why it's good to remember who we used to be on a regular basis because it forms, number one, gratitude in our lives. We thank God for sending Jesus to save us. Number two, it causes humility in our lives because we know when we get saved and we change and we start to be sanctified, it's not us doing the changing. It's the Holy Spirit in us that changes our desires, renews our mind, causes us to be a new person. It causes kindness in our lives because when you remember who you were, isn't it easier to deal with difficult people? 
When you start getting prideful, thinking you've got it all together, man, that's when people inside the church start looking at outsiders different. But when you remember, man, I was just as messed up as they were. Look what God did to me. And fourthly, it increases your faith. Because, boy, I'm just going to tell y'all, and maybe y'all agree with this statement about yourself. If God can save me and change me, God can save and change anybody. Anybody. How amazing is that? Verse 4, we continue. Y'all with me? Say, I am. And he kind of tears them down. Now he's going to build them back up. Listen to verses 4 through 7. And this is very poetic. Maybe in your Bible, this is actually broken up into stanzas like the book of Proverbs or some of that Hebrew poetry is. And that's for good reason. I'm going to explain to you why. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. So he tells you, remember who you used to be, but then he says, remember who you are now. Remember who you are now, Rev Church. Don't be deceived. Verses 4 through 7 form one long sentence that, like I said, are arranged in stanzas, and it's packed with so much theological truth. We could spend an hour just on these verses talking about different phrases like rebirth and regeneration and different things like that, but it essentially is the gospel in four verses. In four verses, we have the gospel here, one of the most beautiful, poetic passages of Scripture that there is in the New Testament. Now, in biblical times, similar to today, societies would use poems, rhyme, meter, songs, and different things like that, even in the church, to remember important spiritual truths. In this case, this would read like a poem to the readers back in biblical times so that they could remember this important spiritual truth. It's not exactly the same, but today we have some things that are similar to that that help us remember important truths that we need to remember. For instance, uh, we are in Crossville, Tennessee. We're about an hour from Knoxville. And in the fall, there's a song that we all sing together so we know who we're rooting for in college football. Pastor Brandon's still trying to learn it. We're praying for him that he gets right, okay? But what is that song, y'all? Anybody know it? Rocky Top. Hey, listen. Rocky Top, you'll always be home, sweet home to me. We know it, right? Good old Rocky Top. Rocky Top, Tennessee. So that helps us remember something important. Go Vols, right? Something similar, maybe like the ABCs. Remember when you were in school and everybody learned the ABCs the same? It helped you learn something that was very important, right? And we all learned it in this specific beat and specific meter. A, B, say it with me. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. See, y'all know it. And that's good. That's good. In church, we do it too. How many of y'all grew up like in church and you remember the song, Father Abraham? Raise your hand. You know the song, Father Abraham? Sing it with me. Father Abraham had me. Is this what you do? Had many sons had Father Abraham and I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. I don't know. Is that how you do it? I don't know. 
I almost went, woo, like Rocky Top. I get it confused. I wasn't raised in church, y'all, okay? I wasn't raised in church. I didn't get saved till I was like 20 or 18 or whatever. So. so that's the idea here. That's the idea of these verses is, is it gives us a way to remember. This is what historians agree are a trustworthy poem. Paul says this is a trustworthy saying. I've told you guys that the book of Timothy and the book of Paul really reiterate each other. It's really the same concepts. And in the book of Timothy, you'll find four trustworthy sayings that really echo what's used here. It's all about the gospel. So we remember the life-transforming gospel that invaded our life and changed us. And by the way, if you're new at Rep Church and you've never accepted Jesus, this is completely available to you by faith because God's grace is available to everyone. We'd love to lead you to the Lord. We'd love to talk to you more about that. God would love to do business with you today, because today is the day of salvation. But When we remember these things, one theologian unpacked these verses like this. In verse 4, we remember God cares for us. In verse 5, we remember that God changes us. In verse 6, we remember God has come for us. And in verse 7, we remember God comforts us. Amen, Rev Church. Let's go to the next reminder. He continues and says, and I want you to stress these things. Stress these things. So now he's talking directly to Titus. But I believe in reading this, he's also speaking to the whole church. Because as we said a couple weeks ago, a fish rots from the head down, speed of the leader, speed of the team. You're supposed to imitate your leaders. So as we unpack this point, no, he's speaking to Titus in a very strong way but he's speaking to every single one of us. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. There's that again. Devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. He says here, remember to use your voice. When Paul says stress these things, a better translation would be speak confidently. This is an emphatic Greek verb that means to confirm. In other words, find your voice for truth. In other words, in the church, we should spur each other on to good works. We should encourage each other, hold each other accountable, lift each other up towards these good works that he's speaking of. Man, find your voice. I was thinking this week, like, could you imagine if I'd lost my voice this week and I still tried to get up here and preach to you guys? I don't know, would I do interpretive movement and you guys would be trying to interpret it in the crowd? I don't know, that'd be goofy, right? But, but, but find your voice. I went to visit a, a couple in the church that owned a farm that had a bunch of ponies on it. I said, man, your ponies are like really, really quiet. And they told me it was because they were a little hoarse. Not everybody gets that. Sorry, y'all. Just trying to get you back, okay? Trying to get you back. Way too many Christians are a little hoarse, right? We're not speaking the reign of the spoken word over each other, over our own lives. And Paul says, find your voice. Speak the truth and live the truth. Chuck Swindoll says this about this verse. A Christian makes the unseen world visible when sound doctrine and good deeds work together, when faith prompts action, when grace received becomes grace given away. Again, I need to say this. This isn't about just speaking truth. You cannot convince anyone of a truth that you are not living, but how are you going to live the truth if you don't know the truth and speak the truth? This is the idea here. Verse 9, we continue. Still with me? Say, I am. We got a couple more. We can can make this, y'all, okay? 
I love this part of the verse, of the chapter, because in verse 9, we start to see, how can I put this? This part of the scripture kind of become like a reality TV show. We see some drama. This is like, and maybe I'm dated for saying this, this is like road rules in the Bible. Anybody know what road rules is? I don't know. If you're old in here, you know what it is. Maybe it's like The Bachelor or something like that. You know, we're about to see some drama. And I love this part of the scripture because uh, he says this, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Listen to that strong language, y'all. Verse 10, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Verse 11, you may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Paul reminds us essentially in these few verses to remember that if you're going to be a part of a church family, it's not going to be easy. Remember, being a part of a church family is not going to be easy. If you've been involved in a church, and when I say involved, I don't just mean you come 1.7 times a month, which is the average for attenders at any church in America. I'm talking like you're in, you give, you serve, uh, you're a part, you're in some type of ministry or group or something like that, and you are actually a part of it. If you're just attending, we're so glad you're here. If you're just watching online because you said you'd never don the doors of a church again, we're so glad you're joining us. But when you really jump into a church, if you've been involved more than five minutes, you know it is not easy. And the reason is, is because the church is made up of people that are not perfect. We're crazy, y'all. Oh, no amens. It's just the first and third service. You guys are the holy rollers, okay? You guys are the righteous people. Jesus Jr. sitting in here, you know what I mean? Like, let's just keep it with our theme. How many people are sitting next to somebody that's crazy? Raise your hand, maybe sometime. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being a part of a church family is not easy. It's been said that Christians need two things to be part of a church, a tender heart and a tough hide. Because church is difficult. There's a lady that wrote something about being a part of a church, and the name of this is Church is Hard by Ariana Freeland. And it says this, listen to this, church is hard for the person walking through the doors afraid of judgment. Church is hard for the pastor's family under the microscope of an entire body. Church is hard for the prodigal soul returning home broken and battered by the world. Church is hard for the girl who looks like she has it all together, but she doesn't. Church is hard for the couple who fought the entire ride to service. Church is hard for the single mom surrounded by couples holding hands and seemingly perfect families. Church is hard for the widow and widower with no invitation to lunch after service. Church is hard for the deacon with an estranged child. Church is hard for the choir member overwhelmed by the weight of the lyrics in the song. Church is hard for the man insecure in his role as a leader. Church is hard for the wife who longs to be led by a righteous man. Church is hard for the nursery volunteer who desperately longs for a baby to love. Church is hard for the single woman and single man praying God brings them a mate. Church is hard for the teenage girl wearing a scarlet letter ashamed of her mistakes. Church is hard for gays, adulterers, liars, cheats, and slanders. Church is hard for the sinners. It's hard because on the outside it looks all shiny and perfect, Sunday best in behavior and dress. However, underneath those layers you find a body of imperfect people, carnal souls, selfish motives. But here is the 
beauty of the church. Church isn't a building, a mentality, or an expectation. Church is a body. Church is a group of sinners saved by grace, living in fellowship as saints. Church is a body of believers bound as brothers and sisters by an eternal love. Church is a holy ground where sinners stand as equals before the throne of God. Church is a refuge for broken hearts and a training ground for mighty warriors. Church is a converging of confrontation and invitation where sin is confronted and hearts are invited to seek restoration. Church is a lesson in faith and trust. Church is a bearer of burdens and a giver of hope. Church is a family, a family coming together, setting aside differences, forgetting past mistakes, rejoicing in the smallest of victories. Church, the body and the circle of sinners turned saints is where he resides. And if we ask, he is faithful to come. So even on the hard days at church, the days when I'm at odds with a sister, when I fought with my husband because we're late once again, when I've walked in bearing burdens heavier than my heart can handle, yet masking the pain with a smile on my face, when I've worn a scarlet letter under the microscope, when I've longed for a baby to hold or fought tears as the lyrics were sung, when I've walked back in afraid and broken after walking away, I'll remember he never failed to meet me there. Amen, Rev Church? It's not easy being a part of a church. Now, Paul in this scripture says, we should not as a church get caught up in these three things that he tells us. And understand this, in saying we shouldn't get caught up in these things, what he's saying is these three things are going to be present in the church. Even at Revolution, we got great unity, better unity than any church I've ever went to or any church I've ever served in, but this stuff will happen. First, he says, uh, look out for foolish controversies. The word foolish here really is the word that sets the pace for all three of these, and it comes from the Greek word moros. Guess what word we get from moros? Moron and moronic. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're sitting next to a moron, okay? But moronic, stupid or nonsensical in other words, futile, empty, or pointless. I love that Paul uses this strong language. He says when the church starts to fight about stuff that doesn't matter, and all these secondary issues, we look moronic to a lost and broken world. Come on, man. We're going to have whole conferences talking about whether we should speak in tongues or not. We're going to divide as brothers and sisters because this church thinks it's okay to drink a beer and this church doesn't. Anybody ever been in a church before? Old people versus young people. We want hymns and we want contemporary Christian music. Are you kidding me? Jesus didn't die for a form of music. Jesus died so people could be set free. We're going to fight about whether the, the, the pastor should wear a suit and tie or if it's okay if he wears a t-shirt. You know what the world thinks when we fuss about this kind of stupid junk? They think we're a bunch of morons. This is what Paul's saying. Don't get caught up in this stupid stuff. This is the same root word that Jesus used when he said, remember that passage where he said, hey, there's going to be some Christians that are like salt that's lost its saltiness. The exact same root word, moriano, same root word means flavorless. What did he say? Pointless salt. It's only fit for the fire, in other words. So we don't fight about foolish controversies. Number two, he says genealogies. These are myths in Timothy and it's most likely people that think they have a superiority complex because of their Jewish heritage. And so anytime 
a denomination thinks they're better than another denomination because of where they came from or or somebody in the church thinks, well, I've been a Christian my whole life, and this guy's just a, you ever hear the term, they're just a baby Christian. They don't really know what they're talking about. Boy, those baby Christians sure do seem like they have a whole lot more faith and they're a lot more fired up about what God can do than you are that's been a Christian for 50 years. So know your role and shut your mouth is what Paul's saying. Does anybody know what that's from? That's from The Rock, Jason Kelsey said. Warren Wearsby says this. He says, I've learned that professed Christians who like to argue about the Bible are usually covering up some sin in their lives and are very insecure and are usually unhappy at work or at home. Spiritual leaders must learn to avoid or stand aside from such people. They will consume our time, drain our energy, and weaken our testimony. Thirdly, he says, stay away from arguments and quarrels. Literally translated, Paul says, don't get into physical contact about theology. Don't get into fistfights, in other words, about theology. Now, again, we've never had this happen at Revolution Church before. God has blessed us with great unity, and we work hard at it. We work really hard to have unity. Uh, and maybe you're like, fistfights in a church? That could never happen. But I've served in three churches previous to Revolution Church as a student pastor, and the church that I served in in North Carolina, I can remember the church was basically going through a split. And uh, on the stage, I watched two men that were in their 70s or 80s almost punch each other over who was going to play the guitar. It's crazy. I mean, at the time, I thought it was kind of cool because I was young and stupid. I was like, yeah, go at it. You know what I mean? But, but uh, it wasn't good. Paul's like, don't do that. Same church. The first week I worked there, I moved my whole family to Charlotte. You know, I'm, I moved my whole family. I got a new kid. I move over there. The first week I'm there, I'm sitting in my office doing sermon prep for the youth ministry. And I hear the pastor, the senior pastor and the finance guy in the office next to me cussing each other out. Again, at the time, I was like, this is awesome. You know what I mean? But, but it, no, it's not awesome. Cussing each other, about to go to blows over something stupid. I think it was about stamps, if I remember correctly, how we should pay for stamps. We got to know the devil's schemes, y'all. We got to know. So we don't get caught up in these things. Paul says, avoid these foolish things and people that will fight about these foolish things. But then here's an even harder truth. In the later verses that we just read, he says, reject divisive and destructive people. That's hard. Reject them completely. Warn them once, warn them twice, and then have nothing to do with anyone that continues to argue or be a heretic. Someone who teaches wrong doctrine or refuses to accept true doctrine as it is revealed in the Bible. Anyone that is causing division among the brethren, which in Proverbs chapter 6, it says it's one of the things that God absolutely hates over and over. If they're doing it over and over It's translated here that you should, and this is on the leadership of the church, like the elders and the pastor and small group leaders, stuff like that, that you should compel them to leave. Compel them to leave. These, as it says, warped and sinful people. And where it says warped and sinful people, not like warped the way I'm warped, okay? The the better translation is like perverted person. And don't think of sexual perversion when you think of that. Think instead of an unreasonable person. Someone you can't reason with that has no humility, that thinks they can do no wrong, that will never submit to any authority and never sees any error in their ways. You got to be done with them. You got to be done with them. I remember in fifth grade, I played rec league basketball. And rec league basketball, every team had eight players that they started with. Well, we had one player quit, and we were already down to seven players. 
The best player on our team was a person named Malik. Malik's not here today, is he? Okay. No, Malik here. Okay, good. A kid named Malik was the best player, one of the best players in the whole league. Well, he didn't show up for practice one week, and the coach decided that he wasn't going to start. And when Malik found out he wasn't starting, he walked out on us and left the team. Put us down to six players, but the coach held to his guns and said, if you're not going to practice, you're not going to start. He got mad and walked out. It was really interesting. I'll never forget, fifth grade, maybe in sixth grade, but fifth grade. I thought we were as good as we were going to get when we had one of the best players in the league. But when Malik was off the team, we went undefeated the rest of the year. See, we thought we needed him to be good, but actually when he left, we became a better team and we went undefeated. This is the concept right here that Paul is pointing out. In America, everything's got to be bigger and it's got to grow. We've got to make more profits. You've got to make more headway. And the church has picked this up. We've got to grow. We've got to grow. I think that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Grow. Reach more people. But isn't it interesting that sometimes God's not about church growth? God's about church subtraction. In other words, sometimes in order to move forward as a team, there needs to be a holy subtraction that unifies the team. Does this make sense to everybody? Say amen. amen. And so sometimes God's going to say, they got to go. They got to go. I would add this too, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I do believe that this concept also might apply to your life. One of the things that I've seen that holds people back more than just about anything in their life is outside influences that they can't walk away from. And so there may be people in your life that you honor them, but you don't allow them to have an influence over you and destroy your family and destroy your life. I've walked with a bunch of people through talking with them about, man, why are you still hanging out with these friends? Why are you still... Some people have to walk away from their parents, y'all. You honor the office of father and mother, but you don't honor the sinful behavior, in other words, is what we've walked people through. I agree with Dave Ramsey when he says, you honor the office of mother and father, but you're not going to honor the behavior if they're hooked on crack. You're not going to enable them to do that, and you're not going to encourage that and let them be around your kids and around your family and destroy everything around you. So, so sometimes... Sometimes some people got to go in order for you to grow. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. amen. Let's close this up. Verse 12. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Therefore, or because I have decided to winter there, do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way to see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. There's the third time it is in chapter 3. Devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. There's the reminder nestled in between a couple of verses that are very relevant. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. The last reminder is this. Y'all still with me? Remember, y'all still with me? Say amen. Okay. Remember, the church needs you to expand the kingdom. Paul says, for the third time, 
Devote yourselves to doing what is good so that you don't live unproductive lives. You know what he's saying? You've got to discover your purpose so that you can make a difference. Now, this is not a question of God's sovereignty, but this is a statement of truth that every single Christian that is in this church right now, under the sound of my voice, God has created you, given you spiritual gifts and talents in order to be used by God to make a difference. You have a purpose from Him. In these last verses alone, Paul mentions no less than seven different people with specific roles that do specific things in order to move the church forward, which in essence also as well moves the kingdom of God forward. This begs the question as we close, what part of the body are you and are you functioning as that part of the body? Have you discovered your purpose and are you making a difference in the kingdom as a whole? Here's your homework for this week. The homework for everyone in here is, again, we're so glad you attend Rev Church. You're watching online. We're so glad. That's not a bad thing. We know everybody, like maybe you got to find freedom before you can discover your purpose and make a difference, and we get that, okay? But for most of the people in here, your homework is you need to discover your purpose and start making a difference in the kingdom. You need to discover your purpose that God has given you and start making a difference in the kingdom. We would encourage you to go through the growth track here at Rev Church. Because we will do everything we can to help you discover that purpose. And then what the growth track does is it causes the church to mobilize together so that we can go change the world. That's your homework. Growth track. Everybody say growth track, okay? Growth track. That's what we want you to do is we want you to grow. Because if you're just sitting around on your blessed assurance, you're going to weather away. You're going to wither away. Closing example is this. There was a violinist, one of the most famous violinists that there's ever been. And I may not say his name wrong, so just bear with me. Niccolo Pagini. And he was one of the greatest violinists that there's ever been in the history of the world. And when he died, he willed his violin to the city that he grew up in. But he had a condition that the violin that he willed to the city could never be played and never be handled on a regular basis. But here's the problem. The wood that this violin, that was a multi-million dollar violin, that beautiful music was played on, was made out of a certain wood that if it wasn't handled and it wasn't played, then it would begin to decay and it would rot. It sat in a museum for several years, and now it doesn't even exist because it's worm-filled and it's decayed. It's the same thing that happens to you, Christian. It's the same thing. You can make beautiful music, but you got to be willing to be used. When we moved to North Carolina, I've already referenced this, uh, we lived there for three years, and it was back in 2010 when the housing market tanked. Y'all remember that? And our house was for sale here in Crossville for three years with nobody living in it, no furniture in it. didn't sell the whole time because the housing market was so bad. We moved back to Crossville into the same house, and guess what? We had all kinds of repairs to do on our house. Why? Because a house is not meant to sit. It's meant to be lived in. If you have a car, you're not going to have a car and sit it in the driveway for the next five years because if you do that, what happens to the car? It ruins it. You have to drive it. It has to be used in order to stay healthy in a sense. It's the same thing for Christians. Get out of the driveway. 
discover your purpose and that you're struggling spiritually, maybe it's because you're not being used in the kingdom of God. If I can encourage you in anything out of Titus chapter 3, discover your purpose so that you can make a difference for God. Fair enough, Rep Church, say amen. Lord, we love you. We thank you for every single person that is here. God, thank you so much for the book of Titus, man. Thank you for Scripture. Uh, Thank you that we get to deal with difficult passages that just really answer a lot of uh, really applicable questions. Uh, so God, we, we again, we just pray, and, and I pray this for myself, that your word dictates my example that I'll give, how I live my life, and that Rev Church will be different. We won't just be people that come to church, uh, that we be people that live this thing out as best we can 24-7, 365. Uh, we're no different than any other dead religion if we're just here on Sundays and not living according to your word the rest of the week. So so God, help us. Give us the strength to be obedient to what it is you want us to do. I pray for us as a church as we move forward in this legacy campaign and try to get this facility built. God, I pray that you open up heaven. I pray that you grab a hold of your people and that the spirit of the people as a whole is willing to sacrifice. The kingdom of God runs on two tracks, faith and sacrifice. And so, Lord, I pray you grab a hold of people and that they give out of the capacity that you've given them to be able to give. We love you. You're awesome. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.